In this episode, we sit down with my friend Amit Klein, where we learn about his history of building startups in New York and how he's helping others fight alcohol addiction as COO of Monument, an online treatment platform for anyone looking to change their relationship with alcohol. Let's get to it. Welcome, everybody, to another session of Launch AMA. I am your host, as always. This is Sam here with Launch Academy, and I am joined today by Amit Klein Monument. Welcome, Amit. Thank you, Sam. Great to be here. Awesome. I, I've been trying to get you for a minute now, but you're a busy man. <laughs> yeah, I've been, uh, I've been traveling this summer, so I'm very happy that I can make it here today. Awesome, dude. Um, yeah, so why don't you just go ahead and little, introduce yourself a little bit just for those folks that are in the audience that don't know you yet. Sure. Uh, my name is Amit. I'm the uh, co-founder and chief operating officer of a company called Monument. Monument is a telehealth platform that focuses on treating alcohol use disorder. Uh, we connect people to uh, physicians and therapists, and we have a free community as well. That's awesome. That's really interesting. We're going to get into that. Before we get too deep, if you folks are listening to this live, if you have questions, feel free to just pop it in the Q&A there. Um, and then we'll, we'll get to as many questions as we can. This is a session made for, for you, you guys as founders. Uh, I mean, has a lot of experience running agencies, product, bootstrapped, funded. Uh, obviously, he's now in healthcare. So we're going to continue talking, but don't be shy. Feel free to pump your questions in and somebody will flag me in and we'll, we'll, we'll answer as many as we can. All right. So, so just to kind of get things started, Monument has like a really interesting business model. Um, could you kind of explain like the origin story of, of how, how you and your co-founders kind of got started and what was really like the objective from day one? Yeah. So um, I met my partner, Mike. I was actually in Israel working on like a deep tech AI mapping startup and I wanted to come back to New York and, uh, I got introduced to my partner, Mike, through uh, a friend of ours, and he uh, used to work in nightlife and was sort of very public about his struggles with alcohol. Um, he made a very difficult decision to seek treatment um, and to change his relationship with alcohol. And that ended up being a, a very challenging thing for him. He tried AA, that wasn't for him. Um, and really getting help uh, ended up being much harder than it should have been. Uh, therapists in New York who specialized in substance abuse were booked out for months, cost $500 an hour. In-person detox is upwards of like 20 grand a week, maybe even more in some places. Uh, there was no really easy, accessible way for him to get started when he wanted to sort of seek help. So um, he had eventually uh, tried some medication that uh, a friend sort of recommended, physicians a lot of physicians really don't have a ton of experience with substance abuse, and uh, it really changed his life for the better. So after sort of four years of being sober, um, we kind of started exploring the space and realized that there was no accessible, affordable, easy way to sort of get, get help when you need it, uh, making that part a much easier process. So um, we decided to get together and uh, we launched the company a few months before the pandemic. Um, we did our first sort of beta in January, 2020, kind of three months before things got a little crazy. And, uh, 
Yeah, and then things um, kind of took off from there. Um, obviously, during the pandemic, people reported 60% increase in drinking. Um, you know, so, you know, it was unfortunate, but it was also kind of good timing for us. Yeah, for sure. So, like, I mean, alcoholism has been an issue in our society for, yeah. for a long time. When you were kind of just entering the space and, and maybe doing some, some research or some initial initial study like why do you think that nobody had kind of tried to tackle you know the specific problem you're solving yet it's a good question um yeah i think a lot of it is is sort of how society views alcohol i think we're going to look at drinking the same way we look at smoking or eating meat or whatever it is in in 20 years i think today the default is that drinking is okay and i think that's going to change in the future we're already seeing gen z's other people kind of uh, sober and Cali sober and various other things here. So, um, you know, I think there's just a philosophy that like, um, you know, drinking is kind of okay. And, uh, you know, the treatment options that exist, unless you've gone through it, uh, sort of suffice. Um, so the more we looked into it, the more, the more we realized though, that, that, you know, a lot of solutions out there are not medical based. People will go to their, priest or their um, friend or their physician who had maybe a single day of substance use training uh, in their entire medical experience. Um, so the more we looked into it, the more we realized that um, there's really a, a large opportunity here. Mm -hmm. And then trying to get both, both the proper therapist physicians on board, as well as, of course, the, the folks that are struggling with alcoholism, like, how did you manage to get both a set of eyes interested in, in, in monument. Yeah. Any marketplace, uh, with, you know, in essence, we're a marketplace. We have supply, which is clinicians and demand, which is, uh, potential members, any market two-sided marketplace sort of has to scale. Usually there's one side that's harder. And usually it's the people who are paying is harder. You know, if we have, uh, our value pitch to clinicians, we have about 150 clinicians on the platform is that, um, you know, a lot of, you know, therapists don't want to run their own practice and, um, you know, marketing and billing and all that stuff. So we make it really easy for them. They can be flexible, kind of like, you know, an Uber driver, you can work when you want, you can set availability, these sorts of things. You can use that to supplement your existing income. The pitch for them is, is pretty easy. Um, there's a lot of people who are interested in doing that. Um, you know, it's harder in our case to, to get customers, especially initially. I think getting our first 50 customers was um, a real challenge. Uh, but once we did that and were able to sort of build trust with members, um, it became much easier to sort of, to begin sort of scaling up the, the growth engine on the customer side. Uh, the only thing on the supply side, um, there's challenge, there's legal challenges, and there's also challenges where we don't want to put hundreds of clinicians on the platform when they won't get matched with members. Uh, there's not enough sort of demand for them, otherwise they'll churn out too. So, you know, we have to scale uh, both sides, um, you know, at, at kind of the same time. Right. And, and as I mentioned, even the just for, for starting monument, like your, your, your friend, I think it was, was, was fairly open with, with his issues. Um, and now I'm just trying to imagine you, you're trying to onboard different users. And on top of that is you're, you're charging something for them, right? Like, yeah. was that difficult? And like, what kind of things yeah. did you learn to kind of overcome to, to onboard members? Yeah, our first 50 customers, I think it took us three months to get our first 50 customers. Um, whereas now, you know, 
a normal day, we might get 50 paid member signups. Um, it was, it was hard because substance abuse in particular, there's a barrier um, for people to want to seek treatment. Only one in 10 people who actually are on the alcohol use disorder spectrum get any sort of treatment. So, you know, we really had to refine our value proposition. Um, we really had to go out of our way and build trust with early members. I did a lot of user research. I talked to hundreds of people who were uh, had alcohol use disorder and really had to sort of convince these people one by one that we were trustworthy um, and that, you know, they could come to us. There's a lot of bad actors in this space. So um, it, it took us a while to, to really get these people and then to refine sort of a scalable growth model. I think initially, like our Facebook CACs, when we, when we first tried this, we were like thousands and thousands of dollars to get a single paying customer. And now, you know, we've reduced that by, uh, you know, 90, 95%. That's amazing. Um, I want to go back to the word trust though. What yeah. was so key or, or was, do you think it was even anything you did when you initially talked to the, even those 50 customers? Because like, these are folks that maybe don't even want yeah. to talk to their family, their friends about, about, yeah. you know, these are some very private issues. So I'll answer that question kind of backwards. So eventually, once we had um, thousands of ratings and reviews, once we had clinician and member testimonials, um, once we had content, like a huge library of content that was clinician-led, once we had articles and PR and, you know, we were in um, other places, once we took a bunch of insurance companies, I think we cover 130 million Americans right now, uh, are eligible with their insurance to use Monument. So once... We had all this, it obviously became much, much easier. Um, but again, our initial customers, um, it was it was really challenging. Um, we did things like um, free phone calls with therapists, um, you know, 10 or 15 minute kind of check in. Um, we did things like uh, we launched free groups. So this was around the pandemic. So um, I think now we're doing almost 100 groups a week, um, small groups, eight to 10 people. Um, you know, we have groups for women, men, LGBTQ, BIPOC, um, anxiety and depression and all kind of revolving around people in their journey. I think once people could see and identify uh, people who are like them, but a little bit farther along in their journey, um, that really helped them. Um, you know, I talked with people, uh, potential customers and customers early on. I would check in to see how it's going. Um it took a lot. It was, it was slow in the beginning. And then to make that like less high touch and more scalable was also, you know, required all these other, other things that we talked about. Yeah. Cause I, I think the, the fairly obvious follow-up question is how does one scale trust? Right. Yeah. Uh, again, I think, you know, like the things you said before, uh, thousands of ratings and reviews, content, video testimonials, um, mm -hmm. You know, having our clinicians speak, um, you know, the groups, I think, are really big for us because it allows people for free to see who are other members um, and to sort of uh, get a feel for some of our clinicians, too, because our groups are hosted by therapists who are on our platform. So you can kind of get a feel for for who's a monument member as well as who a potential therapist can be. Um, so, yeah, all, all those things um, really help us scale trust. Hey listener, I hope you're enjoying this episode of Launch AMA so far. If you would like to attend these chats live, ask questions directly to the presenters, and be part of the show, 
you can sign up for our program, Launchpad. You can learn more about Launchpad and what we do at Launch Academy by going to launchacademy.ca slash launchpad. All right, let's get back to the episode. Yeah, and, and kind of just reading on your website, it kind of looks like you, you've mentioned the word a couple of times. The community it was a big part of, of drawing people in. Were, were our, and our users usually going straight into a community tier first where it's free to use and, and people coming in and they slowly kind of move on in? Um, yeah, it, it's pretty interesting. I would say about 50% of people who sign up for a paid plan um, first join the community, but 50% sign up straight away. Like they kind of know what they want and they're interested. Some people really also like want to be super anonymous about it and uh, don't want to join the community. So, um, so yeah, it's about 50-50. Um, I think the community though is, is really important. We have big plans for, for the community. Um, in the beginning, we saw it as a way to build trust with members and to, um, you know, offer a way for people to get to know people before they they join. But something that we've learned, especially over the last few months, is that community is actually a very, very, very important part of treatment itself. Um, accountability. Um, people want to stop drinking. Um there's usually an underlying motivation, whether it's health reasons or they want to improve relationships with family and friends. Um, people with support groups uh, tend to have better health outcomes. And a lot of people, for whatever situation it is, may not have a very strong support group. People who they're accountable for, people who check in with them to see if they're okay, if they're on track, people that they can go to if they mess up, you know, if, if they relapse, which we believe is sort of part of the process. Uh, for some people. Um, so our community, especially these like small groups, uh, really create that for people and help to keep them on track. So we're actually now, you know, our care plans today are really sort of physician and therapist led, uh, but we're including, we're starting to include groups um, as part of sort of the medical treatment and care plan for our members. That's amazing. And is your community entirely um, folks that are seeking issues or are there also physicians and, and other experts sprinkled in as well? Yeah. So today our community is two things. One, we have like kind of this Slack type experience um, where we have a variety of chat rooms and private chat rooms for groups that you're in. And the second thing is these therapist led video groups. Um, our women's group, for instance, meets, I think, five times a week now. Uh, but most groups are, are once or twice a week. Um, and yeah, so it's two things. It's the video group and the, and the chat room, chat forum. Um, and so there are uh, therapists who moderate the groups, um, but really the, the community is really about peer support um, and it's about connecting people together. We also have resources um, and we actually invest pretty heavily from like an SEO perspective and other things to develop original content that's led and written by clinicians. So we have doctors and therapists, you know, taking this from another angle. Uh, one of the things when we first started was trying to identify where do people talk about alcohol use? Where do they hang out? I looked at a bunch of Reddit forums, joined a bunch of Facebook groups and, and sort of looked, you know, how are people seeking help today? What are they looking for? What content is available? And one thing that I've noticed is a lot of the content was really personal stories. And for, for a lot of people, that's great. 
And some of that can be really motivating and some of it can be triggering and not motivating. So one thing that was missing that we couldn't find a lot of is clinical content around alcohol use. So we talked about alcohol and sex, alcohol and diarrhea, what happens to me after I binge drink, how long does it take, uh, you know, to, you know, about the medication, you know, what is the timeline for, you know, alcohol use withdrawal kind of look like. So we couldn't find a lot of clinical led content. And that was also something that we invested in pretty heavily was getting our doctors and therapists to write content. On the community itself, though, we split it out so that really the focus on the community is about peer support. And for one-on-one medical treatment, you have to kind of go into a paid plan. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Drawing away from, from Monument itself, you know, drawing from your past experience in running other startups, how do you feel that others ought to be kind of leveraging community um, just in kind of the ways you described? Is it for everybody? Is, is, are they, do you feel like there's certain types of startups that, that you know, this makes more sense for? Um, and I think ultimately some folks have, have communities that they don't understand how to monetize. Um, what are your kind of just some thoughts around that? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of a scenario where like building an audience is not important and I can't seem to think of, um, (laughs) so yeah, it's, it seems to make sense to me that, um, you know, if you look at the, if you look at like a full marketing funnel, um, it, it always makes things easier to have an audience and there's a lot of different ways to build audiences and a lot of different places where you can do that. Um, you know, there's, I think the easiest thing that most people can do is like, uh, well, is to find ways to add unique value. So whether that's going into an existing Reddit community and being thoughtful, much more thoughtful than other people and doing research and, and helping other people genuinely, I think kind of the worst thing to do when you're building a community or audience in the beginning is to just like, step into a place where you don't have relationships and kind of shill your services and be like, we started this new startup, come join us. I think, you know, you have to find ways to be authentic and add value to existing communities in order, again, to build trust with people um, in order for them to kind of give you a shot. So um, building your own community is really tough. and, And it's something that I don't think we've necessarily done a great job of in our like forum or whatever we want to call it, chat rooms. Um, you know, if I was starting over, I would probably, I probably would have started by creating like a private Facebook group or something, interacting where people already hang out um, because notifications and getting them to come back is, is a real challenge. So leveraging existing social platforms, the decision whether to build your own community or build one on existing platforms, I think can be different for different people and, and different mm-hmm. needs, but um yeah, authentic, helpful interactions with existing communities to build trust before you go in trying to like sell something. Um, you know, I, I think it's always helpful. Mm-hmm. And then, kind of drawing back to the very beginning, like, how, sorry, how many co-founders are were involved with Monument again? Uh, we, we're three co-founders. Three co-founders. So, so I mean, yeah. there's there's three of you folks. And, and, you know, you, you have to kind of find your customer base. You have to build that community or join that community. And of course you have to build product and then also sales. Like 
Do you see a linear approach of, of how these things are done? Is one, is there like a clear step one first or, or like how, how does that all kind of shape out? I think it depends. Well, first of all, I think having clearly defined roles and responsibilities between you and your co-founders is absolutely critical. I think there should be no gray area. It can change and like you can, you know, you can collaborate on things and you can uh, evolve over time. Um, but I think it's really good to know, like, where does the buck stop for certain decisions um, and who's sort of empowered to make those decisions um, early on. So, um, so yeah, so you, you asked really about, like, what order do you do these things? And, and I think that, again, it sort of really depends on, on the, the, the goals of the company and what they're trying to achieve and their funding situation, things like that. Um, we were very fortunate in this business. We raised a fairly large seed round before we did anything. So, um, and that was mostly due to like my my partner's kind of previous investors. Um, I think in some ways that actually hurt us too because we kind of invested pretty heavily early on in technology and things like that um, when maybe we didn't need to, and maybe we would have looked at like other solutions like building a community on Facebook rather than building our own. We just had mm-hmm. the, the funds to be able to do that. Um, but I've I've worked a lot in working with entrepreneurs who are bootstrapping early on. And in those situations, I think um, traction trumps everything. So the more that you can generate transactions and paying customers, um, the better you are. Um, I tend to think of... of startups and, and growing customer base as sort of this like concentric circles and 10xing every time. So what do I need to do to get my first 10 customers? And typically that's very high touch. Um, you know, you're talking, you're selling, you're convincing people. Um, even the service of the offering that you're provided, a lot of times that can be done manually or semi-manually um, in order to really get a feel for the pain points. And if you're solving in a very, in, in the right way. That doesn't matter if you're B2B or B2C or whatever it is. Um, you want to work with your initial customers almost as design partners. And the more technology that you build, the harder things are to change in those early days. Um, so, you know, for us, it was, you know, our initial audience, the initial persona was someone who was, was sort of more experienced in recovery who knew about the treatment options that were available, who had probably tried some of these medications before and were just looking to, to maybe get refills on their medications. So we didn't need to sell them on the whole approach. We just needed to tell them that this was sort of an easier way to get started. So once you get your first 10 customers, you start thinking about, okay, what do I need to do to get 100 customers? What do I need to do to get 1,000? What do I need to do to get 10,000, et cetera? And at each sale, sort of the further that you move out, you need to start thinking about, okay, how do I scale my marketing? How do I look at B2B partnerships? How does technology scale? How does operations scale? Um, but I think typically a, a lot of times I see um, entrepreneurs really thinking about their first 100,000 customers and the problems there rather than thinking about their first 10 or first 100 and they're solving problems. You know, They're not delaying complexity. They're, they're dealing with complexity that they may not need to deal with very early on. Um, and typically, I would always kind of advise, simplify, 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 kick that problem down the road um, until you need to deal with it. 
Mm-hmm. And then I think I think there's this kind of innate fear, especially as you're, as you're starting out, is is if you're too narrow, is is my market size big enough? Right? How did you? How how would you deal with that that issue or that question? Or is it even a valid question? I I I think it's a valid question from like an investor standpoint. And I think the story that you may have to tell while raising money is a bit different than the story that you're telling for um, your initial customers or your team or you know, the initial product that you're building. Um, again, if you're raising venture, you need to paint a story of how you're going to create a billion dollar company or more. Um, and that requires a huge market and a huge problem to tackle. But how you initially tackle that problem um, there's a lot of ways to do that. And I would sort of argue that, um, you know, you need to be hyper-focused with who you target initially in order to get them to jump to you rather than doing what, what they're currently doing right now. Cause typically like whatever you offer in the early stages, like it's not going to be that great, you know, it's going to be okay. But what you, what you want to find is someone who, who, really believes in you and really believes in the problem and really like wants to work with you and you're solving one very specific pain point for them in a way that's that they're willing to give you a shot you know and i think that's how you get those those first customers and then you use those people as a sounding board to sort of expand your product offering and and getting your next set of customers who will have a bit of a wider problem that you can begin solving I love it. Love it. So we have a question here from Justin. I'm just going to read this out loud. So he's like, hello, I'm Justin, also currently in New York, actually. Um, I really love your solution that solves the substance abuse crisis. I'm curious what channels you're acquiring customers from, whether your physician and psychiatric are in-house or contracted, and on average, how long does a customer stay stay around? Yeah, those are great questions. Um, So today, um, most of our Customer base is coming from Google, Facebook, and SEO. Um, We are undergoing a shift right now with our business where we're really kind of scaling up the insurance side of the business. And we're moving from direct to consumer to um, payer distribution, really. So we're kind of um, shifting from from D2C to B2B2C. um, And that's, you know, basically our our major goals over the kind of 18 months. Um, but we did need to prove that we could acquire and retain customers on our own. And I think starting B2C made a ton of sense for us. Um, but now, as we're talking about scaling from 10,000 paying members to 100,000, um, getting these partnerships in place um, will help us do that in cost-effective ways. Second question was about contractor or full-time for clinicians. Um, most of our clinicians are 1099. We have a handful that are full-time and um, I think it's likely that we'll move to all 1099, although it depends what day you ask me that. Um, Mm -hmm. Lastly, um, how long is sort of customer retention? Um, It's a tricky question to answer uh, because we have a few different cohorts, a few different products. So um, people who engage in, in, therapy plans with us as opposed to people who engage in physician 
and those are different for people who are using insurance versus people who are using cash pay. Um, what I will say is that members who are using insurance um, tend to stay with us uh, much longer than people who are paying out of pocket, um, which sort of makes sense. And, and, and those members are also cheaper for us to acquire because there's lower out-of-pocket pocket costs for them. Um, but I'm going to refrain from getting an exact timeline on that. Uh, Fair enough. For sure. Uh, just on that, I think a little bit more and, and more of a generalist question. So we don't need to get into the nitty gritty of numbers, but, but because I think what's fascinating about your customer is like, is there a graduation point, right? Because, you know, you're helping them with, with a health issue yeah. um, over time. I think the objective and the goal, both from, you know, your guys' point of view, but also of course their point of view is to, to no longer need the service, so to speak. Right. So how, how does that match with your business model where you're kind of happy for them as individuals, but numbers wise, if you're so successful, in theory, the numbers go down? Yeah, that's a great question. And that also comes back to sort of personas and, and some of our bigger vision. So um, my, my business partner, our, our CEO, Mike, is, uh, is also a cancer survivor. And he tells a story of when he was diagnosed with cancer. They said, based on your demographic and your age and your stage of cancer, um, here's a really customized treatment plan for you that has X percent chance of success. And they treat stage five cancer differently than they treat stage one cancer. There's no rigor, scientific rigor behind substance abuse today. We really want to put um, data and customized plan. It's, it's, it's a bit of a buzzword in healthcare right now, but we want to really create customized care pathways for members when they join Monument. Today, you join Monument, you take um, a clinical assessment, which identifies uh, your sort of risk level, where you fall on the alcohol use disorder spectrum. Someone who is um, at high risk should be treated differently than someone who maybe is at mild risk. So, um, what we want to do is allow people to um, be able to sort of flex up and down um, their treatment plans as they progress, um, whether they're going through a more difficult time and want to step up and want to meet with their therapists every week and attend four groups and um, try a different type of medication, or if they're doing really well after a few months and sort of, um, you know, maybe they want to move to therapy every other week or once a month, or maybe only attend one group. We want to be really flexible for people. Um, substance abuse, um, you're never really cured. Um, it, it's always something that, um, you know, people say that they're dealing with. Um, one of the things I, I don't really... I, you know, the 12 step program, there's a lot of good and bad things about that and, and things like that. But the 12th step is about giving back too. So, you know, there's also a way where how do we encourage people who are doing really well in their journey to sort of give back as a different type of member in our community? Maybe they can lead groups, maybe they can create accountability for other people. Maybe there's other things that those people can do in their journey. Also, um, depending on the medication you're on, the medication might be for life. Um so, you know, it's possible that you could meet with your physician once every few months just to make sure things are going okay and get a refill. Um, but we want to create different levels of engagement for people. Um, even if they're doing really, really well, maybe their their pathway care pathway is really scaled back. That's awesome. And then more more of a general question, because I'm looking around the room, there's there's a couple of of 
founders that are looking to get into healthcare. I mean, I mean, your your startup history, you've dabbled in all sorts of different sectors. Specifically about healthcare, what do you feel is some of the toughest barriers to break through? And like what what tips or tidbits would you, would you have recommendations for for those trying to get in? Um I think there's strong advantages and disadvantages from being a healthcare entrepreneur without having like experience in healthcare without being a clinician. Um, I would say for those, the, the US healthcare system is very, very, very complicated. Um, you know, for us, we're currently operating in 20 states. Each time we need to open a new state, there's potentially some legal work and registration involved. Some states are more complicated than others. Like when we went to open Texas, they were like, there's a board that the state of Texas, they have to like approve. And they were like, we need to come visit like your center. And we were like, we don't have a center. And they had no idea like what to do with us because we were kind of this telehealth service. Like we're just moving faster than the laws currently, you know, have. Um, so I would say it's very important to get good legal counsel. Good legal counsel is very expensive. Good legal counsel is also very um, risk averse. So um, I think it's very important to understand the risks and understand what the rules are and then make your own decisions about what actions you want to take based on what you know. Um, I think it's also critical to get um, clinical advisors. We have some incredible medical advisors. Our North Star KPI is really health outcomes, making sure that people who come to us actually stop or reduce their drinking. That's the absolute most important thing for us. We think if we do that well, we track that, um, everything else will follow. So we want to also make sure that we're doing things that are, um, we want to set the, the sort of gold standard for treatment. So without being a clinician myself, I have no experience there. It was critical for us to find people. We have um, the former chief medical officer of Medicaid is our uh, chief medical officer. Uh, we have uh, Laura Diamond who runs um, therapy at Mount Sinai for substance abuse. Um, so we have some amazing uh, clinical advisors who I meet with regularly. Um, so yeah, you know, it's very complicated. Um, there's a lot of rules. Um, get good advice. Uh, and ignore that advice when it suits you and you don't think you're getting <laughs> a lot of trouble. That's that's amazing. And I think that's something that that people don't always think about is because you're you're going from state to state. Like I looking around the room, there's a lot of actually all the founders here, they're looking to build global products, right? So they might think like, hey, Canada might be different than the states, might be different from yeah. India or, or wherever. Um, but you're saying, especially in healthcare, and I think there's a couple of different different sectors, maybe a little bit of fintech where state to state or province to province, it's still different. Um, yep. So, so for, for you guys, because, because like alcoholism is, is clearly like a global problem. Um, how do you, how does one go from like having one state to, to now you guys are at 20 states and it sounds like even, even in the U S alone, there's at least 30 more states. But beyond that, like, you know, it's not like people in Canada don't need help. People in Asia don't need help. Europe don't need help. Sure. How does that, how does that scale other than, you know, your legal team being larger and larger week to week? Yeah. Um, so the legal issues are, are part of it. And I think after we like, 
figured out sort of the initial which states require like additional stuff. It, it actually wasn't so bad. Um, the harder part was um, clinicians need to be licensed in particular states. So um, a therapist or a physician needs to have a license in that state um, in order to be able to practice there. The laws are really outdated. So um, for telehealth, it's the state that the member is in. So I can be a physician that's licensed in, 50, in 49 states. Um, but if the one state that I'm not licensed in is where the member is physically located, um, they cannot provide services to that member. Um, you know, it's it's complicated. Um, yeah, so how do we think about that? Um, you know, again, there is an advantage, though. You know, we were talking earlier about sort of supply and demand, getting our first customers. One thing, especially in a marketplace, um, you know, whether it's a, a dating app or anything else, really where, where you require some network effects, where you have some localized supply and demand, um, setting tight constraints really helps you because if you're saying like i saw when i was in london i saw an ad for a dating app that only works on thursdays um so like you know setting really tight constraints where your your sort of supply and demand have to come together allows you to focus so we just started with new york and then we opened florida and then we opened california and and that was great because it allowed us to refine our messaging it allows us to like um you know, do things potentially locally that we wouldn't be able to do in other places. We put up billboards in New York. There's one on the Midtown Tunnel still for the last two and a half years. Um, so, you know, there are some advantages to that. We will be in all 50 states by the end of next year. Um, we will likely launch some sort of plan that's open to anyone that isn't, um, that is peer support group driven that anyone can join. Um, that doesn't, that kind of doesn't require licensure licensing in every state um but yeah i imagine at some point we'll have to do an analysis and, and open up additional countries and sort of playbook that out maybe if we get you know to that scale makes sense and then just switch gears a little bit like from my understanding you you mentioned that prior to coming back to new york you were in israel um what was what were you doing there what was that experience like yeah um I've always had a little bit of itchy feet. I also lived in India, lived in Mumbai for about three years, working for a, a tech company out there. Um, yeah, I just like traveling and I like living in different places. So um, Israel was, um, you know, I was just looking for like a life change. And uh, I was born in Israel, I have an Israeli passport to speak Hebrew. So um, I have some family out there. So, you know, I, I never thought that I would actually live out there, but um I went and like took some interviews and uh, found a really great opportunity. I led product for a um, for an AI dash cam that's basically in every Uber in New York that did like mapping technology wow. and self-driverless car stuff. It was a very deep tech company. Um, my experience in Israel, my experience in Israel was great. I was there for two and a half years. Um, I love Tel Aviv. I think it's an incredible city. Uh, weather's amazing. It's super fun. Uh, it's expensive. Um, <laughs> the business culture um, is very different. Um, people are very direct. Uh, I don't know if you know Israelis, but they like to like yell and scream and be very direct and be uh, politically incorrect. Uh, so there's a lot of that. Um, Israel generally is a tiny country where everyone knows each other. Um, they are very, very strong at uh, 
technology and engineering and I would say like sales, but very weak on product design, marketing, um, some of the softer storytelling sort of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of building the product and growth organization out there um, was challenging because, you know, I don't think people understood the value of like brand, the value of storytelling uh, in the role of marketing and the whole sort of customer journey. So um, that was challenging, but um, but yeah, it was it was a great experience. Mm-hmm. And then and then because in the in this room there's a folk a bunch of folks who who are in what's called our Maple program where they're immigrating their international business over to Canada. Um, so I feel like a lot of a lot of people are experiencing this firsthand. When you go into in your case, like a new situation, how did you, how did you understand like, okay, these are what, these are the advantages I can leverage since I am in Israel. Um, this is how it's different from the States. And how do you kind of adjust um, and, and, you know, pull, pull experiences from before and also, you know, while you were there? Yeah. So that's a great question. I think it's a, it's a complicated one, especially in my situation, because um, most of our customer base was in the US, although the company was headquartered in Israel. So even doing things like user research in Israel, the way people drove, the way people experienced Hebrew is uh, right to left instead of left to right. So like copy and UI, um, it was very different. So, you know, we would do like usability testing, user research with and like do drive arounds with taxi drivers in Tel Aviv, but, um, you know, that only gave us part of the story because the majority of our, our users were, were, were in the States. So, you know, I had to come back to New York a lot. Um, I think I had a strong advantage sort of being native, not native American, but from America, um, to sort of understand better, um, you know, kind of how things worked here. Um, so I think that gave me like a leg up when I was, sort of moving over there and looking for opportunities, also being a native speaker. Um, One thing that, you know, so I would say that my Hebrew is fluent, but not native. And um, one thing I became very conscious of was like in business meetings, I would end up speaking English rather than Hebrew, um, just because I wanted to make sure that I was like super clearly understood and very precise. And like, I wasn't making any simple mistakes that would sort of take away from what I'm Mm -hmm. trying to say. And I think that gave me a lot of empathy for, um, you know, founders and other people who come here from other countries, because um, I think it can be really challenging to not have like 100% of your uh, fluency with the language when trying to communicate very quickly in business settings. Um, so yeah, I think that that can be very challenging. And then, and then, you know, trying to again, play this, play this kind of reversal game, doing again, let's say for whatever reason, you're going back to Israel, and you're going to start a new startup. Yeah. Um, would you would you hire a team on the ground? Would you would you bring folks over that you trust? Maybe they're working remotely now in this kind of remote first world. Like, what are the advantages disadvantages of of you know using local talent? Um, yeah, I think it depends. Um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of companies. Um, Lemonade is a good example, the insurance company, they're like, uh, they're a unicorn now, where they have a lot of, you know, kind of the engineering founder and engineering team are Israel based, but a lot of like sales marketing 
Knox is US based. That's a very common thing for Israeli startups um, because the the initial Israeli founders kind of have the network and the team people in place to sort of scale up engineering, but they need sort of local people to do sales and marketing um, who sort of understand that better. So, um, you know, that's one example. Um, for me, I think it would depend. I, I have a lot of people who I loved working with in Israel and people I would gladly work again with. Um, I also, um, although we're moving back to some hybrid model where we're going to start going back to the office like next week, you know, once or twice a week, um, I'm a big believer in, in remote teams. Um, so more and more, I think there will be huge competitive advantages to um, attracting the best talent by letting people work from anywhere. Um, so, you know, to me, the there's obviously benefits to getting people in the same room, but to me, I want to hire the people who are best positioned to do um, to do the job um, kind of wherever they, they might be. Mm-hmm. And then quickly on 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 remote work, culturally, how do you how do you kind of spread that across? Especially you're on different time zones, like you like you mentioned some in some cases, like English might not be their native language. Um, how do you kind of continue to spread the the same pace and culture and, and, and you know flow that you want your entire company to be working out of? Yeah, I would say that that is like absolutely the, the hardest part. You know, I think the work cadence. Um, is a solvable challenge. You know, I think trying to do as much as you can sort of async while having, like, I'm a big believer in um, very clear top level objectives, very clear KPIs for each team, regular reporting against those, um, you know, check-ins against those, those sorts of things, written documentation, we use Notion a lot, creating wiki, shared knowledge, up-to-date processes, up-to-date descriptions, roadmaps, all that stuff, so that there is um, centralized written knowledge about uh, strategy goals and sort of execution plans. Uh, that's kind of the thing that I think I'm I'm best at is sort of translating like vision into um, short and medium term strategy. Uh, we can talk about that too. But um, how do you retain like so the work cadence to me is is not that big a deal. Regular releases, you know daily standups, having a cadence around meetings that is not too much kind of depends about the team. Um, the hard part is how do you scale like company culture and how do you make sure that, um, you know, people feel like they're growing and they're part of the team and that work is like kind of a fun place to be. Um, and I don't think we've cracked that. Um, you know, I, I would like to fly everyone in, you know, once every quarter or whatever it is to like do something fun. Um, you know, during the pandemic, we tried to do these like Zoom events, which were like kind of cheesy. Um, Played a bunch of Among Us and Kahoot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't know. Like, is that fun? Maybe for some people, um, you know, like trivia with members on the team. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I think that's a really difficult question, which I, I wish I knew the answer better. That's one of the reasons why, you know, we're moving mm-hmm. like, you know, our leadership meeting and some other things to be in person. Mm-hmm. That, and that, that's where we're, I think you get another vote for, for a hybrid for sure. Um, yeah. I think just kind of wrapping things up. I know in the past prior to Monument, you, you started out building an agency, which, which is sold and, and so on. Um, do you want to just describe that a l- little bit really quickly? Yeah. Um, 
we had sort of our own version of like a startup studio for about four years. Um, basically, idea stage entrepreneurs would come to us. We would kind of help them refine and build the first iterate. We would help them get early traction, basically. Mm-hmm. And the goal was to like get people to their first funding round and help them bring in the teams and then take it on. Um, we ended up doing about 12 or 15 projects. We took discounted cash rates and equity in the company. Um, and it was a great experience. We worked on a huge variety of projects. Um, we built a dashboard for an electric motorcycle company. We made like a computer for art, uh, raised a ton of money on Kickstarter, uh, did all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, eventually there are things I really like about services business. Um, but I didn't think that that was the best way to build a portfolio of investments, which is in essence what we were doing. And eventually we decided to basically, um, I got the team kind of acquired by, by Samsung. Um, it was there for about a year. That's amazing. Because we, we, yeah, we focused really on uh, custom software for custom hardware that ended up being kind of our niche. Um, so we did like custom Android deployments on like weird custom hardware. Mm-hmm. And, and like, I think, I think that that company and the reason I kind of bring up is, is fascinating on both ends. Right. Because I think, I think for, for you guys, um, you get to, you get to experience a plethora of, of building different product in different industries and, and you're just learning so much. Um, but I think the, the investment piece you kind of bring in is like, should startups at that idea stage be, be, I guess, first of all, diluting, but also they're, they're paying you some cash, um, to build that MVP. Like what is what is I mean you're outside looking in now so you can kind of be be honest yeah. um, but like what what in what scenario does it make sense where it's like hey let's let's get Amit and his team to to go and do this um, versus no we have to kind of what we've talked about earlier in the hour where it's like you have to get hands on you have to meet the customer shake the hands really figure out what that problem is yeah um, I would say that the people who I would say for for some of our like customers or people that we worked with, it made a ton of sense. I think for for people who had um, you know done a lot of validation on their problem space and had potentially tested some solutions, maybe had some customers ready to go, and were like, "I kind of know what I need, and I'm." I'm just, you know, I need a little bit more in order to kind of get this funding round, or there's one or two risks that I can only solve through technology um, that I need to like identify if we can do it or need to build these prototypes, um, you know, whatever it is on the hardware side. Um, in those situations, I think, you know, it made sense. Um, but, you know, I think we ended up getting a lot of people who, um, were maybe successful in a different career, um, real estate lawyers, whatever it was. And then, you know, we're coming to us with just some idea and, um, you know, we worked with them and we built something and it wasn't like immediate successful and they didn't necessarily have a plan for what to do after. And then we were like, okay, like, you know, we have to move on. Uh, like, I'm sorry you didn't get to exactly where you needed to be with this. Um, so yeah, that was difficult um, between sort of continuing to help and invest entrepreneurs and us needing to kind of move on because that was our model. Um, so so the short answer is is 
for, for most people, I don't think it makes sense. For most people, I would say like you should find a trusted partner who you can work with for the long term, um, who will be available for you. Um, but in some cases, like it could from my perspective. Especially it sounds like a lot of the hardware pieces that need some specific specific focus. Yeah. 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 We 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 started off pretty general and then ended up getting very specific into this niche uh during kind of this like internet of things type boom um you know a couple of years ago so um yeah that, that was our approach cool all right so so we're wrapping up the hour like um i guess i guess for you amit like i know i know you love getting connected with companies that's why that's why we're talking um what what do you got going on whether it's with monument who are you interested in meeting and and how can people connect with you yeah, uh, I'm happy to like send out my email, uh, Amit at joinmonument.com. Uh, I'm free. You know, if people have questions or you know, they have some specific things that they're that they want some feedback on. I'm happy to like talk to to anyone um, and try to help however I can. Um, so yeah, happy happy to continue the conversation with anyone who's listening. Awesome. Awesome. It's great to hear. And, and for those that don't know, I'm going to drop some nuggets is, is Amit is also a terrific basketball player. Um, so if you're up for a challenge, hit him up. Um, thank you so much, Amit, for, for joining us. Really appreciate you, you know, with, with all the busyness you got going on. I mean, you're solving alcoholism. So, so I'm glad I could pick an hour out of your brain. <laughs> yeah, we're trying. And that's actually like the best part, you know, every day, I really feel like we're making a difference. You know, we have this Slack feed of, of reviews and people are just saying like, you know, my whole life has changed. Uh, so, you know, really that's, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. I'm super excited about that. Thank you for, uh, for having me. I really appreciate the time. Thanks for listening. No problem. If you guys are listening to this live, just know that we're doing this for every single month. If you're listening to the podcast after, um, you can join us live just by by getting a Launchpad membership. That's at launchacademy.ca slash launchpad. Um, thank you again, Meet. Uh, really appreciate your time. And thank you, everybody, for, for tuning in and asking questions. Um, I hope it was valuable. And we'll be back again really soon. Thank you very much. All right. Take care, everyone. This episode was part of the Launch Academy network of podcasts. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already. While you're here, we hope you can check out the other Launch Academy podcast, Bits and Bytes, and Founder Journey. If you're interested in joining these talks live and learning more about what Launch Academy does, go to launchacademy.ca. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at Launch Academy HQ. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.